Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we are joined by Elspeth Iralu, Mellon Fellow at the Stanford Humanities Center for the current year. Her research and teaching interests include indigenous geographies and methodologies, visual culture, critical surveillance studies, and planning for decolonial futures. Iralu's first book project examines the global spatial surveillance of indigenous peoples, nations, and territories in the 21st century through a multi-site relational analysis of colonial surveillance and indigenous resistance in the United States, India, and Palestine. She is Angami Naga from Konoma Village, Nagaland, and grew up in Gallup, New Mexico. I hope I got all that right, Elspeth. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you today. Well, thank you so much. Um, let's, let's get going with a question that I've been pondering on, which is that uh, you've talked about your work as quote unquote, indigenous mapping. Um, so I'm curious by what you mean by that. And, and let me just set the scene a little bit, um, maybe because um, I'm from the heart of colonial mapping in the Netherlands. To me, a map is a crucial tool of, of the colonial enterprise. And so an indigenous map almost sounds like an oxymoron. So can you can you help me with that? Yeah, of course. Um, and, I, you know, I like this question a lot. Um, I think I completely agree with you that maps have been um, have been and continue to be a really essential and powerful tool of colonization. And, um, and so, and so I think that's an important thing to foreground as we talk about mapping, that that's, that tends to be what we're thinking of when we think about maps. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's really important to kind of step back and think about like what, what else a map can be. And so, um, when I'm writing about mapping, I'm not just talking about sort of, um, you know, uh, Cartesian coordinate system with latitude and longitude as your X and Y axis. But I'm thinking of a variety of forms that um, that a map can take. And so a lot of scholars um, of indigenous geography and indigenous cartography have described um, a really wide variety of historical um, mapping forms that indigenous peoples have, have created and used. Um, and so I like to think about a map in terms of rather than like, what is the map as an object, but what does the map do? Mm. Um, and so and so if we're thinking about what does the map do, then we can think about like, what is it for? And so um, maps can store data and communicate information about space and place. They can be used as a tool for, you know, navigation or wayfinding. And so I think when we think about it that in that way, um, you know, thinking about the verb of mapping, um, then we can think about other forms. So scholars will talk about, um, you know, like pieces of wood that have been carved to shape, uh, to match a coastline um, or songs 
that have been used by indigenous peoples to narrate a, a journey, you know, a wayfinding path. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a whole bunch of other, other varieties. Um, I've published a paper about the Zuni map art project from Zuni Pueblo, which is a series of paintings um, of cultural landscapes and kind of broadly, broadly thinking about landscape. Um, so maps can take on the, a huge variety of forms. Um, and, but I also think it's important to say that um, I, that indigenous nations also use the same kinds of technological tools to make kind of normative Cartesian maps that um, other institutions use. And, and often these are used in really powerful ways to make um, specific claims for, um, for territorial claims and claims to resources. And that that's a really essential thing. And so I don't mean to try to say like, you know, indigenous mapping is um, only, you know, non-digital, but I think indigenous mapping encompasses a really wide variety of techniques and, and um, objects. Great. Got it. Thank you so much for clarifying that for me. Um, I also want to ask you about the word indigenous and, um, and this is, I know this is a very big topic, but we can take your time. Um, what, what it means to be indigenous in South Asia, um, in the USA, and then perhaps especially in New, New Mexico, where you grew up, where these multiple indigeneities come together. Um, I'm wondering how you how you think what it means to be indigenous in those different contexts. And I guess I'm also wondering, and this is partially just language based, but is it helpful to have an umbrella category like quote unquote indigenous to cover such a wide range of identities and experiences? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, this is a big part of my work. It's just trying to understand what is how is indigeneity defined? Um, is there a shared understanding of it? And how does um, how does indigeneity kind of show up in different places around the world? Mm -hmm. And how is it used um, both for like to enact local struggles, um, but also to engage in with a more um, with people on a more global scale? Um, so when I teach, I often will talk to students about um, indigenate like indigenous indigenous with a lowercase i versus indigenous with an uppercase i. Um, and so what I what I tell them generally is that often um, in kind of uh, older scholarship, uh, indigenous will be used as kind of an adjective to refer to something that's in place. So we could say like a specific plant is like indigenous to whatever region. Um, and and so that's often often when people use indigenous, they're kind of using it sort of in passing in that way as a descriptor. Um, and then other times people will will define indigeneity via something people kind of commonly refer to as the firstness argument, as in like who was in a place first. So um, so this if the first definition that has to do with like being in place is about space and place, the second one involves time and space. Um, but in critical indigenous studies, which is my um, my kind of you know intellectual home, we think about indigeneity with a capital I. Um, and so what distinguishes it from these other ways of defining indigenousness um, is that indigeneity is a political uh, category It's a, and it's a political relationship. And so it denotes um, a different set of relations um, from that we might tend to think of. So um, indigenous peoples are people who have had political relations to their own communities, which also entails um, re political relations with land, um, and that these relations preceded sort of the uh, dominant um, political systems that exist now. Um, so I think like I I think it's really important to note that um, 
indigeneity isn't something that is created through colonialism, but that it's already that these relations already existed prior to colonialism. And so it's not like a um, colonialism isn't what makes indigenous people, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But but can we can we break it down a little bit in terms of these different geographical areas? Because it does mm -hmm. feel like indigenous in uh, in the United States means something very different to indigenous or Adivasi, if you will, in, in South Asia. Or is that is am I not correct in thinking that way? I, I think the answer is yes and no. <laughs> That's uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so let's uh, maybe we can start with thinking about kind of internationally and sort of how indigeneity um, as sort of a concept and analytic functions internationally. Um, and, and and I can this part, I think I, I can speak kind of briefly. You know, indigeneity is is used by community. This idea of indigeneity and, and identifying as indigenous um, is used by communities all around the world, you know, everywhere except Antarctica, I would, I would guess. Um, and, uh, and, and since the mid 20th century, there's been a lot of um, kind of organizing and coalition building between indigenous peoples from all over the world, especially in forums like the United Nations. Um, and this kind of came out of sort of the era of decolonization um, and was this sort of grassroots movement to say, hey, there are all these peoples who, um, you know, weren't weren't granted. I'm putting in air quotes. Um, weren't granted, uh, you know, liberation in this in this time period. And so these are people who are saying we we need a forum that advocates for our rights as indigenous peoples, um, both human rights, but also rights to land and resources and um, traditional ways of being. And um, so this movement within the United Nations was, uh, you know, especially active in the nights kind of started, got a lot of momentum in the 1980s and involved um, people from all over the world and um, sort of, you know, it, even it continues today. But um, in 2007, the UN um, sort of ratified the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And this is a very long document that sort of explains what is indigeneity, um, what are indigenous rights, um, but without ever really doing that in a really concrete way. So there's no one concrete definition of, you know, like, uh, you know, you can't have like check boxes to identify is somebody indigenous based on this checkbox that doesn't exist um, within the within the declaration. Um, and, I, and that's very intentional because all, um, all these people who participated in developing this you know, they um, they experience and name their indigeneity in different ways. And so it was really important not to have a single um, single definition with very explicit criteria. Um, and and so let's see, to go from there, maybe to kind of link that to think about different places. I think in the United States, we think a lot about um, sort of how indigeneity works within kind of a US or maybe Canada based system. Um, and so there's a lot of kind of big, uh ideas that are that you know both scholarship engages and that come up in sort of political um political movements um and so in the us and canada a lot of um how a lot of discussion around indigeneity it has to do with legal recognition and so this is legal recognition of tribes by the federal government um and so this kind of determines who gets to be legally understood as indigenous and um and then there are you know various uh, potential benefits um, that are associated with that legal recognition and, and legal um, recognition of an individual's identity as well as belonging to that community. Um, however, you know, for indigenous peoples, generally, 
um, the way that we experience our indigeneity is not just through this legal recognition, but through our, you know, our, our uh, sense of community and belonging um, to our communities. So I this, but I think these ideas about legal recognition um, end up showing up around the world in other places as well. And so in India, um, India has a written into the constitution is this category of the scheduled tribe. And um, while the constitution of India doesn't use the word indigenous, um, the way that in, uh, the scheduled tribe is defined is very similar to how indigeneity is defined elsewhere around the world. Um, and so the in this case, the scheduled tribe, uh, these are people's um, communities in India that are um, identified as not being a part of the, the like dominant cultural uh, system and not part of the caste system. And so that's a really big distinction from other groups in India um, is this kind of like being separate from and outside of um, these kind of more dominant systems. Um, let me think about where where to go next with what this. kind of so in terms of this the schedule what kind of benefits are are granted if that's the right word i think we're going to use the word granted in this conversation always with air quotes with air quotes yeah <laughs> uh yeah so um this so it depends on the um but on the individual scheduled tribe in some ways um the within sort of the there's a government they call them reservations which is kind of similar to what we would describe as affirmative action in the United States that set aside, um, you know, employment or educational opportunities for people who are members of these communities. Um, and then there are also, um, depending, this kind of depends on the scheduled tribe in the region of India, but there are also um, certain aspects that have to do with um, land and, you know, rights to land. And then um, also uh, rights to sort of traditional cultural practices. Um, and the right to continue um, maintaining what are often called customary practices. And so where I work in Nagaland, this is um, this is the case that there are um, particular uh, legal, um, legal legal ramifications that have to do with um, land and also have to do with customary practices. Okay, great. Thank you for um, setting the scene on that. And then, um, in because we are the Center for South Asia um, podcast, uh, can we zoom out a little from India and can I ask you about indigeneity in South Asia as kind of a larger subcontinent? Sure, I think within our scholarship, um, the, the engagement of indigeneity in South Asia as, um, as you know, engaging in it as with a capital I indigeneity is um, a sort of new and emerging field. And so I'm really excited by the work of Himalayan scholars like um, Pasang Sherpa or Mabel Gergen or Dali Kikon, mm -hmm. um, who are really taking this idea of indigeneity seriously and thinking about how does this, um, how does this change our ideas about, um, you know, South Asian studies more generally. Um, uh, Pasang Sherpa uh, works in Nepal, um, Mabel Gergen works in Sikkim, Dali Kikon works in Nagaland and Assam. And um, so I think that there's this kind of growing movement to try to think about these sort of tribal peoples, um, in air quotes again, um, through this idea, through this analytic of indigeneity. Um, but there's also a really, uh, one thing I think is really interesting is that this also kind of corresponds with kind of more popular culture and, and popular interest in, um, in this idea. Um, so, you know, I follow a bunch of meme accounts on social media <laughs> and there's one that's called decolonial indigenous memes that popped up once. And I, based on the name, you wouldn't know, you know, what, where the, what the geography it comes from. 
Um, but this is a, a meme account from Northeast India. Um, and they're very invested in um, thinking through this idea of indigeneity and what are um, what are the characteristics of indigeneity in Northeast India? Um, how does that show up in people's everyday lived experiences? Um, and how and what makes that different from um, the experiences of other communities in South Asia? What's the name of the? I love a good meme. What's the name of the meme? Um, <laughs> it's out? called Decolonial Indigenous Memes. <laughs> it does everything it says on the. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think that that really speaks to um, kind of the, um, it, in some ways it's sort of an oppositional stance, but the ideas of um, sort of claiming, the, I think even just that name uh, claims a couple things. One is it makes this claim to indigeneity. The other is it makes this claim to um, uh, decolonization as not yet happening in Northeast India. Um, so I think that that, even just the name, I think is pretty interesting. Um, and, you know, the memes are funny too. <laughs> We'll, we'll look them up for sure. <laughs> I just want to go back to something you said about the, the definition of the scheduled tribes, which is that they're not part of the caste system. So I would, the way I understand it is that the um, the scheduled caste, so there's three schedules, if you will, mm -hmm. in the constitution. Uh, and this is partially explaining to um, our audience members who mm -hmm. may not be aware of this. Uh, you have your scheduled tribes and then there's scheduled castes, and then there's a category called other backwards castes. Um, but none of those three are part of mainstream Hinduism or indeed of the caste system as we understand, as I understand it. Um, and so we have done, we have done um, in the Center for South Asia recently, uh, quite a lot of programming around caste. Uh, we have uh, Dalit scholars visiting campus and, and we really try and, and highlight the issues around Dalit activism, Dalit awareness. And I'm wondering how, if not your work fits in with that, but how your consciousness fits in with that mm -hmm. and whether these different scheduled categories as defined by the constitution if there is kind of a, a consciousness between them or if it's just a constitutional analytic. Oh yeah, I'm really glad that, I'm so glad you asked this question. Um, I, so yeah, so, you know, um, in my work, I focus on indigeneity. So of course I'm like thinking a lot about scheduled tribes and not thinking as much about scheduled castes and other backwards uh, castes. But I think one, um, I, well, you know, from the, from the names, it's very, it's kind of, you can infer sort of how these are defined. Um, and that these these are three groups that are sort of within legal terms are defined by their disenfranchisement, right. um, and and so I think and I, so I think that's an important um, an important thing to note to think about sort of the similarities between these um, and both in terms of how they're defined but also their you know their own lived experiences. Um, uh, and I think that there's a lot of, I think the political goals of, of like Dalits and indigenous peoples or Adivasis in India, I think there's a lot of overlap. Um, you know, both are, um, you know, both are very, are thinking about, uh, you know, liberation from, from oppression by sort of dominant society. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of opportunity for connection and, and coalition building. And I think that that is, is happening. Um, but I, I think it's also really important to distinguish between, um, between these groups um, and not just kind of lump them all together all the time. And um, the reason for that is I think that in lumping them together, we end up kind of subsuming, um, 
we end up subsuming the like the very distinct histories and political identities and um and political goals of these groups into kind of one just group identity that's you know all about you know these are disenfranchised people rather than thinking like these are the distinct political identities and experiences um, and dreams of these individual communities. And I think that can even be hard, even just with a category like the scheduled tribe, um, in that, you know, th there's tons of scheduled tribes and they don't all have the same history and the same goals and experiences. Um, so I think there's this kind of, these, these sorts of categories um, can be helpful in that they allow us to see connections that we might not see otherwise, um, but they also, can sometimes we run the risk of erasing sort of the individual experiences of each community. Yeah, for sure. And then they become defined by what they are not, which is kind of the colonial way of looking at these communities. Yeah, right. And I think that maybe this gets back to your early earlier question that has to do with like, is the idea of indigeneity even useful? Um, and, and to me, I think what I what kind of where I'm going with this is that I think, yes, it is useful, despite the fact that we're talking about these vastly different peoples with vastly different experiences. Um, and so I think sometimes I think of indigeneity as like this, uh, it's sort of like a tool that people can use as a way to like make connections and understand sort of their, their relation to other peoples in the world. Um, but, you know, ultimately, like, so for me, I'm Angami Naga. Um, and that is, that's important to me, like my connection to my own community is important to me. And that is more the center rather than indigeneity, which is this more sort of abstract concept. Right. right. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's talk about Stanford. Uh, you have been at the Stanford Humanities Center and, and once again, shout out to our colleagues for bringing these fantastic scholars to campus. Um, tell us what you've been doing while you're here and how, how is it useful for you to be at Stanford? Yeah, yeah. So I'm here through the Mellon Fellowship of Scholars in the Humanities, which is a postdoctoral program um, that's based at the Humanities Center. And um, so far, it's been really amazing. It's um, really cool to be around so many brilliant scholars and, um, you know, get to engage with them on a weekly or daily basis. Um, so that's been really exciting and and really um, very sort of nourishing. I think after finishing, after finishing graduate school and being sort of, you know, burnt out, <laughs> it's really nice to have the time to, um, to just kind of think and talk and sort of rethink, um, rethink my work. I love uh, so I, I, I can I just uh, thank you yeah. for saying using the word burnt out I feel that <laughs> we're we're so stoic in the academy and just keep going keep going keep going keep going and yes being burnt out after graduate school is real people is real <laughs> yeah yeah I would I would wish for every every person you know finishing their PhD to have you know have a year to to sort of slow down and reassess their projects with some distance and fewer pressures. So um, yeah, it, it's been really nice for me. I remember at one point last fall, like, um, you know, working one day and then realizing like, wow, I'm not tired <laughs> and I'm enjoying what I'm writing right now. <laughs> and that was really great. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so yeah, to think more about like what I'm doing here, which was your actual question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love the framing. <laughs> yeah, so I'm kind of I'm working on uh, you know turning my dissertation into a book, um, and so this book manuscript, uh, the dissertation was really about um, 
uh, kind of colonial spatial surveillance and everyday forms of surveillance through um, it, mostly aerial imagery and and sort of about our how how we are all sort of complicit in this surveillance by um, you know even just accessing aerial imagery through like online mapping platforms um, that we all end up participating in these forms of surveillance and then and also then thinking about how indigenous nations respond to those kinds of everyday forms of surveillance um, by representing their nations on their own terms and so I look at um, uh, I look at a wide variety of forms, both kind of more traditional maps, um, but also, uh, you know, visual, uh, virtual reality, graphic novels, um, uh, let's see what else, video games. So I'm looking at a big variety, paintings, a big variety of kind of visual culture um, to think about how Indigenous peoples represent their lands on their own terms. And so for the book manuscript, I think one big shift that has happened for me is really thinking of this project as a book about Indigenous methodologies and how and kind of how um, how we can understand sort of relations, kind of like in the, you know, glissant sort of poetics of relation, how we can use these relations um, to kind of make sense of our own experiences and um, communicate those at multiple scales. So that's kind of the, the main book project that I'm working on. And then um, this year, I'm also have been working on a couple articles. Um, one uh, is under review right now, and it's sort of an experimental, um, it's like scholarly creative writing is how I think think about it. Um, I wrote it as a form, the form is as a, um, a letter to my grandfather, um, who was very involved in the Naga sovereignty movement. And, um, and, and there's this, I had heard a rumor from another scholar that some of his papers ended up in the Smithsonian archives, anthropological archives. And I haven't had a chance to go try to find them yet. Um, but when I heard this, I was really surprised because our family thought that all of his um, personal papers had been destroyed or lost. Um, and so this essay is about, and the letter slash essay is about um, you know what happens when our when our archives disappear or are destroyed or go missing, and so how do we make sense of our um, how do we make sense of our histories and political stories, um, and how do we kind of narrate our indigenous political genealogies when we don't even have access access to the archives that we know used to exist sometimes very recently or sometimes they still exist and we know who has them but we can't access them. Um, so it's kind of, in some ways, it's a letter about sort of grief, the grief of the archive and the grief of not of not having the archive or not being able to grasp it. Um, so that's one article. And then another article I'm working on is co-authored with Naga anthropologist Dolly Kikone. And um, this one is about Naga pedagogies of love as expressed through um, kind of games and stories that have to do with rice. And so we each talk about Dali as Lota Naga, I'm Angami Naga. So we each talk about um, stories that have to do with rice from our, our uh, communities. And um, we're really interested in like how these stories do things like measurement and, um, and kind of map out relations um, and how those are very different from the sort of development goals that are often placed onto indigenous peoples. So a lot of the paper is about kind of how we how Nagas think about measurement differently from kind of you know uh, development goals. Um, 
I just thank you. I just need to. I mean, I'm slightly stuck on the video games. Um, sure. Partially because as we were speaking, my my son, who's an avid gamer, came home from school, so I brought it into my. You were speaking right around that same time. Uh, said video game. Um, so I'm uh, having lived with um a, a video games for um many years now. Um, through my son. I'm aware that there are games that um, that kind of co-opt indigeneity and there's lots of games that, you know, we have to work the land. There's lots and lots of games like that. <laughs> like, you know, there's this piece of earth and now we're going to develop it. And I think sometimes the word, I don't play these games, but I'm aware of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've had to push back against them is, as a parent. And it said, but anyway, you seem to work with games that are about self-representation. So that is amazing. And and you need to say more about that, please. Oh, sure. Um, So right now I'm writing about a video game that's called Thunderbird Strike um, that uh, was um, designed by Elizabeth LaPonce, who um, is, I think she's at Michigan State. I'm actually not sure. Um, She's a scholar and a game designer. Um, And this game is about um, the building of pipelines, um, that transnational building of pipelines across the Canada-US border. And um, what I think is really interesting about this game is that as the player, you are a Thunderbird and um, it's a side scrolling game. So kind of like old school, you know, Mario or things like that. So as a Thunderbird, you fly across the um, across this landscape and the Thunderbird can move between the sky, the surface of the earth and below the surface of the earth. And you can see a sort of cross sectional view, like kind of like a um if you've seen like geologic cross sections it's sort of like that where you can see what's underneath underneath the surface and so the thunderbird can um strike uh things at any of those levels and um so sometimes you can strike like pieces of pipeline um in which case they're destructed um or you can um you can uh, strike um the remains of animals that are under the surface, in which case they are sort of restored and they move to the surface of the earth. So it's really beautiful. Um, and and so I'm really interested here in how these games are representing um, indigenous territory as being not just uh, two-dimensional on the surface of the earth, but as being volumetric and taking up space um, across you know, the sky, land, and below the land. Um, and then I'm also interested in how um, so this is there's this aspect of sort of like volumetric sovereignty, um, but also I'm interested in how it's just a very different perspective from how we usually think of, you know, the maps are made from the aerial perspective or like this omniscient view. Um, and in this case, the the Thunderbird is able to see things that, um, you know, we don't have we don't have other tools that have that perspective. Um, so I think that's a pre- I, I'm really excited about writing about that game and, yeah, and what it does. Fun amazing and i i'm i don't enjoy video games but this one i feel like pulling it up on the ipad to try it yeah yeah Yeah, easy to download and it's a very short game um it has three levels and you can play it pretty quickly okay i appreciate that too (laughs) yeah (laughs) um elspeth when you're done at stanford what's next for you so in august i'll be um joining the university of new mexico department of community and regional planning um, and so there I'll be an assistant professor of indigenous planning and congratulations. Um, That's thanks. Familiar. Thanks. I'm excited. I'm really excited to, to begin. Um, yeah. And I'm really excited to kind of develop courses on indigenous methodologies and indigenous space, place and mapping. 
um, and and thinking through that with with students. Um, yeah, that's that's the ne the nearest next step. Um, and I think like in the sort of my next project, I want to think a lot more about um, the Naga sovereignty movement and how that has how that shows up sort of visually in cultural production. Is it um is it special? I mean, it is special, of course, and and it's wonderful that you will be um holding that professorship. But um, is there a lot of focus on ind indigeneity at the University of New Mexico, or is this a kind of an, a, a new uh, field of study as in terms of the, the university? Yeah, I mean, I think relative to um, other large universities in the United States, yeah, there's a, a a much larger number of indigenous faculty or people studying um, indigenous politics or histories or literature, um, and so yeah, and so that's really great. And I think also there's a again, it's like a relative <laughs> relative sure. number, um, but a relatively large number of uh, of native students. Um, that are at University of New Mexico and the Department of Community Regional Planning. Um, I believe it's the only planning department in the United States that has a sort of um, formal track within indigenous planning. And so that's really exciting to be able to work in a place where that is really prioritized and valued um, and where students are coming because they're seeking that. Amazing, amazing. Well, um, we wish you all the best and um, uh, I hope that your remaining months at Stanford will be productive. I'm sure they I'm sure they will be. Uh, and thank you so much for joining me on Sasquatch today and talking about your work. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.